you need to build your muscle memory. So when a breach happens, you know exactly what to do and, you know, exact the steps. Because at the time of crisis, you might not have access to your digital assets that store your runbook. You need to be able to build the muscle memory like your firefighter. You know how to grab the hose, put on the fire suit and turning on the water. Those need to be your muscle reaction to that. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Nat Prakongpan, product manager at IBM Cyber Range. Nat, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Our pleasure. So, Nat, before we get started, we'd like to ask our guests to go ahead and tell us about their background. You know, where did you get started? Where did you pass along the way? And where it is that you're now at? Yeah, definitely. So, interestingly, you know, I started in cybersecurity by becoming one of the targeted of the attack. My account was, you know, get password reuse. I have a development system that was breached, and they were able to reuse that password in the production system. Where I was flagged as an insider threat to an organization, and you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was determined to figure out how they get it. You know, how I can prevent it from happening in the future. That's how I started in cybersecurity back in 1996. So you started as the villain in the story. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. So and then from there, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So obviously, you know, started at. Internet security system, who was brought by IBM back in 2006. I was a part of the support team, who later became part of X-Force quality engineer. But essentially, I was leading a team that does product integration because IBM have a lot of cybersecurity products. And, you know, as part of the product integration team, we interview CISOs, clients on how they use cybersecurity products in their operations. Most of the client have 40 plus cybersecurity tools within their you know, security asset, and not all of the product works together. So we create use cases and user stories and try to make sure that those products actually works together to get to the goal that the clients try to get to, right? So with that, we got exposed to a lot of cybersecurity product from identity management to SIM solution to network protection, web applications, firewall, and making sure that those are all working together to give the client the best protection, right? They might come in and say, hey, I want to make sure that only certain users are allowed to get to this website. Along the way, there's multiple tools that, you know, security onion layers to get to that lock in place. With that, and when IBM was creating the cyber range to practice our team was brought in as we're the only team at the time in IBM that knows the breadth of the security product. So we were brought in to create these user stories as a practice engine for our client. As we bring the, our client in, we show them a real breach simulation and we see how their business responds to it, right? Not just from technical perspective, but from an end-to-end cyber risk management perspective. How do they respond to the press? How do they respond to regulatory uh, requirements? And, you know, are they going to get fined by somebody because they didn't report an event within 72 hours? Mm -hmm. So we bring in an end-to-end simulation from a technical breach 
into the business response because once the incident hit the news, it's no longer become a technical issue. It is a business issue at that point, right? And whether your business survive or not, it depends on how well you respond to the breach, not from technical side, but from the business side of the earth. And so this capability, which I would say is fairly unique because usually people have very specific kind of technical tabletop exercises and they oftentimes kind of miss the non-technical stuff that you're describing. How does IBM go, how do they go about informing these scenarios? Like does IBM have a group of people that are specializing in learning about business needs or are these business needs recorded as your account executives go out and try to canvas and recruit business? Yeah, definitely. So we have a pretty big incident response team as part of our X-Force consulting business. We work with the client and regulatory on a lot of the issues. For example, we are part of the, the CISA advisor role on defining the regulatory and you know reporting requirement. We work with a lot of big clients, Fortune 500, that are our client and helping them define this process. We work with a lot of the ISACs, right? FS ISACs and a few other ones that are big consumer of cybersecurity tools to help them figure out what's the best process that would help them get their business back as soon as they can in an event of a breach. We get a lot of those requirements and then we implement it into our, our story. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that seems like it would be a lot of effort to kind of manage, because those are insights, right? They're not necessarily factual details, they're perceptive details. And hats off to the folks who thought to incorporate those factors. Because like I said, in my experience, tabletop exercises often overlook those altogether and they end up being less simulation and more kind of like regurgitation of, you know, what our best practices. And so very, very cool. So, you know, obviously threat intelligence is a, a major piece of an exercise like that. Talk us through, like, what would your regular day look like doing these types of things? And, you know, which parts of those activities excite you? Yeah, so I've always enjoyed learning the, the latest and greatest technology, as well as understanding the basic, right, the attack surface. How can the attacker get into your system? The techniques that the attacker use to get into systems. Of course, the, the technology that we can use as a good guy to prevent and mitigate the attack once it happens. And most importantly, you know, how is the business prepared to respond to those breaches? Because like you said, most clients only think up to the, okay, this is the problem. This is the way the attacker get in, and this is the tool to prevent it. But they never think about the business side of the house on, you know, hey, when the breach happened, can we pivot the business to make sure that we stay in business, first of all? Because a lot of time when the attack happens, some of the business doesn't survive the attack at all, right? So always interesting to see how the business respond to those breaches. So that's what I, I enjoyed at IBM. So, you know, I get to work with very big multiple team across many disciplinary from the regulatory side who we, you know, work with, you know, help set up standards with government, financial regulation, you know, helping to understand and, and work with the client in those industry, in those disciplines on what are their requirements that they're trying to get out of the security posture. Mm -hmm. Right. So be able to work across multidiscipline is great here. Sure. So one of the things we like to ask people is about, you know, general misconceptions or things that people get wrong. Right. 
in your case, you've been exposed to a lot of organizations and run them through these exercises. So you might actually be one of the leading authorities on these kind of things that people have misconceptions of or, you know, that they get wrong. So in your opinion, what are some of the leading things that people do get wrong or have misconceptions about? Well, I think the key thing is, you know, the business resiliency, right? How does the business respond to breaches? Mm-hmm. So, like I said before, most of the time, client focus on the technical side of how do we defend the attack? How do we find root cause analysis? But not how do we continue to operate the business? So that's one thing. And second thing is, you know, having the right attack surface management, of course, is important. Like, you know, one of the first bullet in the NIST SP-800 is identified. So have you identified all your assets and where you could be exposed to attack? You might not know you have you know, system laying around that that could, you know, expose to attack, like in my case, password reuse of my development system that was sphere of the attack. So understand what you have and be able to wrap the playbook or the incident response playbook around it is that some of the important stuff that, you know, many clients miss, right? Sure. No, I couldn't agree with you more. That's often, often overlooked. In particular, one of the things that you said earlier, like, could we pivot and provide a capability like business critical pieces? Oftentimes people don't even know what turn out to be their business critical pieces. So yeah, again, very, very good stuff. So let's talk about, you know, critical thinking, critical skill sets, given that you go out and have seen people go through these simulations so much of the people who do very well. What are the kind of skill sets and capabilities that you have seen prove to be the key aspects of a successful practice? Yeah, so successful practice, like we talk a lot to our clients, is practice, practice, practice. You need to build your muscle memory so when a breach happens, you know exactly what to do and, you know, exact the steps. Because at the time of crisis, you might not have access to your digital assets that store your runbook. You need to be able to build the muscle memory, like, you know, you're a firefighter, you know how to, you know, grab the hose, put on the fire suit and turning on the water, Mm -hmm. right? Those need to be your muscle reaction to that. So training and muscle memory is key in uh, responding to cyber incident, you know, both from technical and non-technical side of the house. Okay, very good. So you conduct these exercises, right? The idea is to facilitate readiness. You know, they're essentially training, right? This is training for the bad stuff that happens. You do it mostly for outside people, right? Does IBM use this capabilities themselves? And what other kind of training does an organization that is so massive? Can you give us some insights on how does IBM keep their internal staff and their internal folks, you know, up to par? Are they all cyber range users? They are not all cyber range users, unfortunately. Cyber range is very high resource consumption exercise. And that's not just from a technical side, from a time and, you know, dedication and the ability for the team to work together. Mm-hmm. So cyber range is a team-based exercise, not that, you know, someone can sit out and do your own training, obviously. So from an IBM perspective, we do, of course, just like any other organization, have the annual education for all of IBM population. And mm-hmm. each year we focus on the CISO leadership view as, you know, what's the most important threat during that time. IBM, you know, released the X-Force Threat Index every year. And, you know, anyone can get access to that. And we use that as part of our decision-making on what type of training we should be offering to the employee on the yearly basis, right? Now, the training module itself adapts as the learner progress through the education module. 
So it's not same for everybody. That's a gamification and kind of choose your own adventure type built into the training. So it will, you know, change based on the reaction that the learner is replying to the system. On top of the annual education, we also have the role-based education around security by design. Okay. And this is more specific to our product and services employees, where we have, you know, technical roles and developer have a different set of trainings than the non-technical role, such as, you know, product management and, you know, regular, you know, employee that are not technical. There is a security component in those training so that they, we can make sure that all of our product and services are delivered with, you know, at most secure ways that can be done. So that's part of that. And of course, phishing is, you know, 41% of incident last year was based on phishing. And usually that's how people get into the corporation initially. So we do have, of course, the phishing exercise that are monitored, adapt to things that what people might be looking at from a phishing email. Okay, very good. Yep. So let's talk, you know, forward facing. And again, mm -hmm. kind of based on what you've seen, how people do as they handle these scenarios. What do you believe will be the biggest cyber risks, the challenges that we'll face around cybersecurity, around risk control? What do you see or what would you predict will turn out to be some of those biggest factors and our biggest problems? And what is IBM doing to address them? Yeah, definitely. So obviously, every organization now identifies security as their main focus today. They work on, you know, ransomware prevention and, you know, how to prevent data breaches from happening. But what they might not have in place is the plan for the recovery of the data after the attack, right? So eventually, if you're trying to prevent ransomware, you're trying to prevent data breaches, some of it will be breached. And do you have the plan to recover those data and uh, what to do after the attack? So the organization needs to plan for that, right? They should be treating the attack that, you know, as inevitability, right? It, it, it's going to happen. But when it happened, do you have the plan to recover from that, right? Obviously, you know, storage is kind of the last line of defense. If you go through any security training, they're going to say, here's how you protect people from getting into your firewall, prevent user from, you know, doing certain things. But if it fails, it gets ransomed, you go and recover from your back, right? But mm -hmm. when you throw it to the backup side, do you have something to catch? What's the plan? What's your data resiliency plan to, you know, protect those backups and make sure that those can be recovered? Another important thing is, you know, with the quantum computer becoming more prominent or becoming more, you know, mainstream, what are you doing with your backups today? Let's say you have backups today that are stored somewhere on-prem. Are the encryption for your backup quantum safe? You have a look at that you might already be late because mm -hmm. your backup might be staying around for years and mm -hmm. you would not have a chance to re-encrypt those with the quantum safe cryptography. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind me asking, and for our listeners' education, tell me quantum safe, what does that mean? So quantum safe means that you use the cryptography that cannot, or it's hard to crack by quantum computers. Mm -hmm. For example, if you use AES-256, it's going to, be a little bit more resilient than, you know, basically half the key link. So once the quantum computer become more mainstream, they're going to be able to crack it at the same time as traditional computer on AES-128. So NIST is working on 
it's in draft version now, but they're finalizing some of the key passing, key exchange methodology, as well as the keys that are quantum resilient. So those are the things that we would be looking at. Is quantum resiliency, is this a specified byte length that mathematicians have determined to be, this is the line in the sand, anything under this is not quantum safe, anything over this is quantum safe. Do you know, are they specific to certain encryption algorithms? And sorry to put you on the spot if this isn't your area of expertise, but I'm very interested by that because I see it as, you know, quantum computing, once it's less expensive, is going to start to scale similar to Moore's law, right? The thing to be back presently uh, is the cost of production. It's not actually, I mean, we have worked out how to do this. It's now actually doing it is the challenge, right? And when you're talking like photonic mechanisms and to do these calculations, you know, this is now where we've left the electron behind, right? We're doing speed of light computation. At some point, I think, the lack of heat and, you know, there's a bunch of factors that lend itself to scale when you think of quantum computing, right? So, but you can't do it yet because it's so massively cost prohibitive to actually do the physical scaling. So I see it and I'm not trying to pick on you, but I see the idea of something being quantum safe. Surely that's a matter of time. I mean, because Moore's law will start to apply here because right now the only thing keeping it from happening is supply chain, right? So Is there a mathematical line where we believe that scale is irrelevant because the computation is that big of a challenge? I would disclaim that I'm not the expert on the Python realm. But so yes, the algorithm itself needs to be quantum proof. So basically quantum computer, as I understand it, is not just, you know, zero and ones, right? They can do way more computational than zero and one. So some of the algorithms we have today that would take traditional computer million years proof mm-hmm. can sometimes be solved within days, for example. So the algorithm is one thing. And then the second thing is the key link. For example, in the AES algorithm, the quantum computer basically essentially half the key link. And, you know, happy to receive feedback on that as I'm not the, the foremost expert on it. So as far as I understand it, the algorithm needs to be quantum proof, quantum safe, as well as the key length is part of it, sure. right? Because right. at the end of the day, the key system is, you know, how hard would it take someone to crack those keys? Mm-hmm. And sometimes a really long time is considered safe. It doesn't have to be cracked. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, it's been a number of years now, I want to say about 10 years ago, probably the most interesting application of quantum when it came to crypto that I've seen was... A photon, when you're doing fiber optic communication, right, that you're sending pulses, you're sending waves of light, you know, down a piece of glass, right? And it turns out that if you can look fast enough, you can tell if someone else has looked at the wave because there is something akin to like wave collapse to where it wants to become a particle again, or it wants to try to become an object and lose its waveform. Somehow its waveform changes. And I thought that was really remarkable. They were working on, and I believe it was IBM for what it's worth. I believe it was one of your research laboratories where they had created basically like a GBIC, which is where the fiber terminates into the router, right? But that could detect if someone along the path had looked at the wave as it had gone past, meaning 
if your network had been tapped. A remarkable application of physics, but it was only possible to do that using, you know, quantum systems and the network itself being, like you described, kind of quantum safe. So sorry, I don't mean to drag us down the crazy <laughs> rabbit hole here. So what's the next things for you at IBM? What's the future for your role at IBM look like? And, you know, what do you have planned? Yeah, so obviously, you know, I always interested in working in the new and emerging technologies, for example, you know, integration of security tools when, you know, security tool was emerging and building up the cyber range. We built that first commercial cyber range in the world in 2016. So now bringing that cybersecurity knowledge to the storage system within IBM, right? So in the storage arena, not a lot of people talk about cybersecurity within the storage, you know, essentially in the SAN and in block storage system. Security is usually at the boundary of the application, but, you know, how do we make sure that the storage become part of the XDR? XDR is basically the detection and response system. For example, we have EDR today for your endpoint. We have NDR, network detection and response for your network and firewall. I'm bringing the security knowledge to essentially bring the storage to become an SDR. How does the storage unit become storage detection and response mm-hmm. where the storage itself without the knowledge of the host workload, detects anomaly, security anomalies such as ransomware, insider threat, mm-hmm. data exfiltration on the storage, be able to react to that and prevent incident from either happening or spreading in your environment. Yeah, interesting. I saw an open source project, again, it's been a while back, but where they were basically using a kernel module, uh, this was on uh, Linux systems, and they were looking at the disk I.O. So they were doing this in software layer, right? So at the expense of the CPU. But the CPU has to do reads and writes anyway, right? Those I.O. functions still borrow some That's amount right. of CPU time. So they weren't recopying the disk. They were looking at the I.O. functions. And they wrote like an alerter for when ransomware kicks off and starts yep. to encrypt all of the individual files this kernel module would detect those headers. So literally like stream the characters on the way to the block device at write, they would look for the specific ASCII header of what the encrypted block looks like. And then, you know, send you an alert. Funny enough, obviously that doubles your uh, CPU utilization for this specific function, which is not easy, right? So hopefully uh, you guys are embedding that on the devices themselves to alleviate that demand. But what I thought was interesting to it was when you're doing this like on a small scale, like, you know, a small Linux system, right? That's probably easy. But when you have a high performance environment, so like if you're serving a million people a minute to a website, right? You're not going to be using slow spinning disk where you have the time to do that, right? Is like an SSD or non-volatile memory storage. These are very, very fast. So by the time you would even get the alert, you know, you've already probably lost some of that stuff. So I'm glad to hear that somebody has taken up the idea of making it part of the storage solution itself because the kernel module idea, while novel and I think absolutely a great idea, really seemingly impractical just because, I mean, like I said, it might work, you know, on some old system that you keep under your desk to test and play on. But when you get to big scale systems, yeah, it just wouldn't be realistic. 
So that's fantastic that you're getting involved there. Uh, we'll definitely keep an eye out for that type of stuff. Do you have an idea of what product sets you guys intend to include these capabilities in, or is this not yet? It is already. So like you said, right, the problem becomes how much data does the AI model consume and how much we can carve off. We have an early release version that are available today in the IBM Fast system. And then we're making big improvement to that. And you should be able to see some updates coming up soon. Okay. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Yeah. Any client in general, not just IBM client, can look at some of that data today, right? So things like the duplication rate, compression rate. Usually mm -hmm. if your data is normally compressible and all of a sudden it's not compressible, you should be able to get that from your storage system and your telemetry should be able to tell you like, hey, there's changes. So leverage that today and take a look at your storage system today, but we're hoping to make it more fine-grained, more automated, more intelligent in the coming release. Yeah. Huh. Compression. Yeah, that's a very good idea because encrypted data can't be compressed. That's the whole... That's right. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. You've enlightened me. Thank you. So okay. final question. We like to ask people for actual advice. We like, for our listeners out there, like I described to you in our pre-show briefing, you know, we like to give people something that they could walk away with after listening to the podcast. What are three yep. pieces of actionable advice that you would give to practitioners out there to help ensure their success? Yeah, definitely. So first thing is the quantum safe, right? So look at your backup. Is your backup today quantum safe? Because you're going to have that backup laying around for the next 10 years. And if 10 years from now, quantum become, you know, more available, people are going to use it to get to your data. Mm -hmm. Right. So make an inventory today and make sure you start adopting some of the quantum safe. There's a draft version of NISC out today, but also you can use the existing algorithm with the right key link to make it quantum hard problem. That's my own term. Don't quote me as an industry term. So <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is, of course, the NIST framework, identify, detect, protect, you know, identify what you have. You know, what's your most valuable asset in your organization? And it's likely going to come down to data of some various form, whether it's your client data, your engineering data, your architecture graph, things like that, right? Make sure that those are protected with, you know, the right encryption. You are protected with the right backup solution and make sure you have a plan to recover from it. Not just like, hey, it's protected, but you never practice recovery. You never actually try to, you know, recover from those backups, right? So when you're in an emergency or a cyber attack, you're going to need your muscle memory to, you know, recover those quickly. And the final thing I'm going to leave the audience with here is, of course, I can't mention IBM without AI, right? So in our latest threat intelligence report, threat intel index that we released a few months ago, it shows that, you know, you make sure you incorporate AI to your workflow and help you work faster, right? It, AI doesn't replace you, but it helps you do your work faster. And, you know, the average saving for organization that use AI and automation extensively is 1.76 million compared to organization that does not. So AI is your friend, you know, make sure you apply it correctly, understand what the AI does before you dive into AI without understanding what it does. Sure, absolutely. Well, I will say this. I don't know for sure if we can't talk about IBM without AI, but we certainly can't talk about IBM without an I. So that was my, that was my Monday dad joke for you. So. <laughs> 
So anyway, so Nat, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a very interesting conversation. Very good stuff about kind of baking security in, you know, to essentially to the physical layer. Very cool future application of this stuff, because I think a lot of it today, a lot of crypto is avoided because it's seen as expensive. Crypto is also very spooky to people. They don't understand how it works themselves anyway. So when you, somebody starts, you know, coming in and kind of doing what I did earlier in our conversation, again, sorry for that. But, you know, like it's very quickly deep water. And I think a lot of people just are kind of turned off by it. I know there's probably a lot of CISOs out there who even see the crypto they're using as a risk, because what happens if you lose your keys, you know, things like that. By the way, I've been in those shoes. Once upon a time, I had some backups. I used not IBM's backup solution, which I probably should have at the time. It would have spared me a bunch of heartache. But I nearly lost all of the data for an entire company, but instead, luckily, the solution I was using, their crypto was not very good. And I was able to decrypt the email backups and kind of- I'm not sure if I should feel good or bad. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it was good for me, but I was astonished at what they had been doing, which I won't get all into it, but I'll put it this way. It was trivial once I realized what they were doing. So, but I had to have, you know, full access to the backup. Like you described, eventually someone will get access to your backups. In this case, they were my backup. So I was lucky enough for it to not be an attacker. But in that scenario you described, with enough time, someone can figure it out. And in the best case scenario, they're going to be limited by the resources they have available to crack this massive encryption. But in the worst case scenario, they're going to realize they're going to have enough time to study the crypto and realize that maybe it's not crypto at all, which is what happened in my case. Turned out it actually wasn't encrypted at all, which is pretty crazy, but true. Yeah. So yeah, I won't get all into it, but it wasn't encryption. So Luckily, because I was able to recover it all. So, but anyway, so Nat, that's all the time we have. Thanks you so much for joining us. Uh, we also like to ask our guests when they're on the show, should any of our listeners want to kind of see what else you're up to, connect with you professionally, things like that. Do you have social media? Are you on any kind of media platforms? Yeah, definitely. Uh, of course, you know, follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's going to be the main platform I use out of for work. So yeah, follow me on LinkedIn or, you know, Anything on IBM.com and IBM Tech Exchange community, mm -hmm. you can find me there. I, I'll be posting blogs on different cybersecurity objects mm -hmm. uh, from time to time. So, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, folks listening, we will make sure to put those details in the show notes. And Nat, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cumry.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.